are listening to Joygasm, a video game and movie podcast. I'm Russ, Xbox Live Toaster 360, making his triumphant return as Steve, Xbox Live, Steveovich. And we also do our takes in one cut in episode 159 today, February 8th, 2020. We're going to have a bit of a kind of a recap with good old brother Steve since he had technical difficulties last week. I thought for one, it would be great to be able to start off with giving you, Steve, the ability to provide your high level impressions of the gentleman movie since you were unable to participate in last week's recording yes. and uh, pr- pr- you know, also provide your, your, your star rating as well. And then I thought it would be fun for us to actually quickly go down our very own Oscar predictions for someone like, you know, who we think will win best director, which movie will get best picture, that sort of thing. And then we'll be able to go into our topic of the day, which is our movie review of 1917 which you can fast forward to if you look at the timestamps located below. Otherwise, just keep listening. So, Steve, without further ado, I do believe it is. It goes without saying, I am so happy to have you back. It is wonderful uh, to have you back on the program. I bet you are, Russ. Yeah, um, my, my sound fort abilities are not what they used to be apparently and um <laughs> i probably should explain the technical issues that i had before um but basically i'm i'm trying to build a makeshift jerry-rigged sound studio with cardboard pillows blankets and you name it anything else you, you probably built a fort that's with your when you were a kid and i'm using it um so um what happened was, you see, what happened was the the cardboard wore out and it uh, was rather large cardboard and it toppled over my computer monitor screen, which sent me uh, into a rage. And because I couldn't hardly see anything on the computer, I couldn't uh, really see where your invite was and therefore I couldn't click on anything and... Um, <laughs> Suffice to say, I haven't been using my computer much in the last uh, week. Um, anyhow, so yes, um, the the gentleman. I would say the gentleman was. I would say a three and a half star. I enjoyed it. I thought it was probably the best performance I'd ever seen out of Hugh Grant. To be quite honest, yes, um, I totally agree. <laughs> so I, I, you know what? And I thought you might ask me this, so I, I made sure I did not listen to the last episode because I didn't want to hear. Which, I didn't want to like sound um, like I had heard what you said, so I haven't listened to it yet. Um, so, but no, <laughs> that's an excuse, and I will accept that. <laughs> so I mean, I thought the pacing was a bit off because like the first, I would say, good quarter, maybe even a half movie. I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, what is happening here. What is this movie about? What is taking so long? I, okay, a bunch of people are, okay, it's a mafia movie. I get it. Uh, it's, you know, so, this guy wants to get rich. He's trying to play the one person against the other. And I see, I mean, I, I kind of see what's going on, but I mean, this is taking a long time to set the foundation of the movie. Then the second half, everything got interesting, but um, it really took a while to, to, to pick up, but uh, I did enjoy it. I don't know if I really want to see it again, but I mean, uh, like I said, I thought, I thought, with other movies that I've seen Hugh Grant in, he always kind of just acts like Hugh Grant. But this one, he acted like <laughs> something completely different. And I thought it was fantastic. So, um, I mean, everybody did a great job, but Hugh Grant definitely stood out. But yeah, um, <clears throat> I I totally agree. I, I, th- I think I even said this in last week's recording, but um, when I was watching the trailer, the first like two or three times I watched the trailer, I didn't even know that was Hugh Grant because his acting was so different and he looked so different from back in the day. Like in the nineties, he just had kind of more of that clean cut boy next door kind of, I'm, 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 I'm Hugh Grant. Hi, 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 nice to meet you. Yeah. And it yeah. was so different from <laughs> <laughs> where, like where he was in, in, as a character in, in this film. And, and it was fantastic. Yeah. Just to bring you up to speed. So I absolutely love the movie. I gave the movie five stars myself. Oh. I thought that yeah, Guy Ritchie was back in true form 
when it came to movies that he had done in the past, like Snatch. Like Snatch is one of um, my all-time favorite movies. I think it's probably one of your all-time favorite movies, if if I'm not mistaken, right? I would say so, but to me, Snatch is a five, and this uh, to me did not compare to Snatch. See, I think when it came to the movie, and I talked about how I didn't want Snatch to be like the only type of UK underbelly gangster type movie ever made because it was so good. I wanted there to be more explorations into this type of world that had been created. And I was so happy that he returned to it. And not only that, I didn't feel as though the gentleman was like a knockoff of snatch at all. I I felt like they took on their own type of original story and the characters that he made, even though they were not as prevalent as in snatch, I still found myself really enjoying all the different characters that the film had to offer as well as the dialogue. Like I think, I think there were, there were a lot of different moments in there too. And I think it, it, it was one of those things where it's so uniquely guy Ritchie. And I even, t- I even mentioned this too in the last episode of Joygasm, where he, he directed some of the BMW films way back in the early two thousands that starred. Um, I want to say his name is Clive Owen. And Clive Owen. even what, what's that? It was Clive Owen, yeah. Okay, it was Clive Owen. So, you know, looking at at that, I I was thinking to myself, man, like, he definitely has his own unique action movie style that no other director can really replicate. At least I haven't seen it myself. And I think it's like the perfect blend of having intense moments and, and certain brutality things going on, but he laces it with this comedy, this humor that goes on. So there's there's this nice flirtation that he does. So anyway, I'm glad that um, you had a chance to be able to give your your impression on that film. And I was I was wondering what you were going to give it. I was I honestly thought you were going to give it like four or five stars, but three point five. Okay, there you go. You've heard it here, ladies and gentlemen. When it comes to the Oscars, the Oscars are this weekend, and I must say, looking at the list. It's it's been a, a while since I was actually pretty engaged as to who the the contenders are. Um, I don't know if if you look, Steve, but the films that are up for best picture are Ford v Ferrari, of course, the, the Irishman. I haven't seen that. That's been on Netflix, and people have talked about it. Say so it's pretty good. I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't seen it either. Um, Jojo Rabbit, which is one I actually wanted to see because um, oh, what's it? I, I always forget how to pronounce his name. It's Watiti, is that is that the the director Ta- of um, Thor Ragnarok? Yeah, ta- ta- some Taiku Watiti or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he directed and starred in Jojo Rabbit, which is that one film that he I think he plays Adolf Hitler, and this is it's, it's like this totally off the wall, weird but like strangely interesting film that everybody has been raving about. Joker, which I don't have to say anything about. It's it's Joker. Little Women, Marriage Story, 1917, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which honestly surprised me. I I am not exactly sure how that film got onto the list. And then to round things off, Parasite, which you and I have talked about, um, I think about two or three episodes ago, and neither one of us have seen, but we're I think we're both curious about it. Yeah, I, I when I looked at the trailer for um, Jojo Rabbit, I just didn't. I don't know. I really didn't see what the, all the fuss was about, I, and I, <laughs> I don't know if I wanted to see it, but uh, the Joker for sure and uh, Ford v Ferrari, I, I definitely could see them winning a few awards. Yeah, when it comes to the Best Picture nomination, um, which I, you know, actually, I saw something that IGN did that I think would be fun for us to do, which is they they posted an article where they had different staff put down the movie that they think should win Best Picture, and then they also put the the film down that they think will win Best Picture. And I think it'd be fun for us to do. Like in your mind, Steve, out of the films that are listed on there, which film do you think should win Best Picture? Um, should win. Um, I, uh, 
Well, it, it's 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 just between the Joker and Ford v Ferrari because Joker really had that. Well, no, I, I'm, I I think I have to say it has to be Ford v Ferrari for both. I mean, because I had the acting was good in both movies, um, but I felt just totally escaped uh, with Ford v Ferrari. Like I wanted to see more, and like they they capitalized on every minute I felt in the film and. I don't know. I mean, it's really close because they did so much, so much good with the Joker. I just didn't. I'm trying to separate the feelings that I had because the film was was thought provoking and it made me feel disturbed walking out of the theater. Um, for you know, I don't want to be biased towards that versus entertainment, but I don't know. I just think I think Ford v. I think Joker will win some, but I think. For for should win and will win, I think it's going to go to uh, Ford v Ferrari. All right, so um, for me, I think man, it uh, it's it's not a, a clear cut. I I do think for me, what should win is Joker. Uh, like like if I if I had the 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 control over. Um, where the little golden dude goes, I would I would definitely say Joker. Um, but in terms of who will win, though, I I think it's kind of a toss up because I think I do think Joker has quite a bit going for it in terms of winning Best Picture. But I honestly, I mean, nineteen seventeen is also no slouch. I think nineteen seventeen has kind of a late surge in interest. I think when, when they were, were initially advertising the film, there were people who didn't really give it much attention. Like they saw that, Oh, it, it, it was almost in danger of being labeled at like quote, another war movie kind of thing. And then after a while, people started to watch it and then word of mouth spread. And people were saying, Hey, this is a really, really good movie. And so, I oh mean, I, I, if, if you had to peg me down, I, Oh man. I think Joker will win. I honestly do. I think I think I think I can I think it edges out 1917 just because we've had other war movies in the past that have won best picture. And even though that Ford v Ferrari is a, a really great film and it has great acting, I don't think it has quite the the staying power in terms of um, the type of effect, like lasting effect it has. And I, I suppose we should also make a disclaimer about how neither one of us have seen all of these films. I think we've only seen maybe about half of them or a little less than half. <laughs> that always seems to be the case too. Like every time Oscar season comes around, we look at it. Sometimes it's really bad. We've only seen like one or two out of the entire list. But I, I think I'm going to stick with that. I think that there are definitely other films in that list that can all of a sudden pull out a surprise and, and, and have it be that way. I also think in terms of best director, you have quite a few different people up there as well. You know, I think that Mr. Mendez, who did 1917, definitely did a great job, which we'll get into later. Um. And I even think the the director for Joker, considering his repertoire of uh, previous films, just essentially being comedy, doing films like um, Euro Trip and The Hangover and that sort of thing, and having him go from that to doing some sort of very deep and heavy drama like Joker, I think that there is something to be said for that as well. But again, it, it's, it's kind of a fragmented view on, on how all this stuff works out. Were there any other categories in the Oscars that, that you were particularly interested in like best in photography or anything like that, Steve? Yeah, maybe. Um, yeah, you know, I'm, I more so who wins what than like, you know, interested in what movie makes what category. Yeah. 
But, you yeah, know, when you said uh, something about staying power, I mean, sometimes the Academy recommends like these rando movies. And well, I shouldn't say that. I don't want to assault anybody's opinion. But like that, what was that fish movie that was uh, like there? I think what they got best picture or something. Oh, like, Guillermo okay. del Toro's. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I can't remember. Yeah. What I'm call. like, why in the world was did this win what it won? I see it was really artsy fartsy. But, you know, if the Academy is rating it on artsy fartsy, I mean, I don't see that movie. No one's, I I don't hear anyone talking about that movie anymore. And I see them talking about, uh, I, I see people talking about J- the Joker movie well into the future. So yeah. um, I don't think this, like Stang Power has po- like a higher point scale with the Academy than, uh, than like just artsy fartsy stuff. <laughs> Cause I remember we both watched, we're like, okay, maybe we, we gotta, we gotta sit down and we gotta watch these movies because obviously we've missed out and there's a bunch of important movies that are happening. We need to watch them. And then we watched all of them and we we're like, I, I would never watch these movies again. Probably I wouldn't recommend them. I don't, you know, the Academy is obviously not interested in what I'm interested in. So yeah, they tend to make those curveballs every once in a while where like you're one year they'll, they'll come out with all these different nominees and then you're thinking, I haven't even heard of most of these. And then you, you give it a fair shot and you watch it and you're thinking, I really don't understand what the fuss is about. But then there are other times where suddenly like, like this year, for instance, I really feel like, the contenders for best picture are in line. I mean, I, when I think back as to like what other movies came out during the year, I think that this is a fair representation of the ones that really stood out. So, you know, in, in addition to Todd Phillips, who was, you know, he's the director of, of Joker in terms of the cinema photography, Joker also had amazing cinematography. Do you remember all, like how every scene was so captivating from oh, like, yeah. like a lighting standpoint and framing and everything? And I don't know who the cinematographer is for that particular film, uh, but I definitely think they should be at least nominated, if not be in the running to, to win that. topic of the day is the movie review of 1917. We're going to start with our high-level spoiler-free thoughts before going into our spoiler elevator and being able to go into the spoiler territory, discussing the film and analyzing it in great detail. So, Steve, what did you think of 1917? Well, I, you know, I thought that the movie took a huge risk in a, the the little amount of cuts they made. I mean, I I'm I, I'm trying not to blink because I thought I would miss something, and it dawned on me that they're not cutting. This is all like straight monologue. Or if they did, maybe they're using some sort of new tech that they can kind of blend the cuts, and you don't notice it. I don't know, but like. I mean, the guys wake up and they're walking and you're walking in front of them or you're walking beside them or you're walking behind them. And I'm saying you're walking because it's it's like the, uh, you know, the camera is you, the viewer. And the guys just keep talking and action happens. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> I mean, it really does make it a lot more intense when the camera doesn't break things up. Um, but then also, it, it, it didn't feel like I'd like it. I'm not going to spoil it at the end of the movie, but I, at the end, I didn't feel like they had traveled as far as they did. Um, because it, to me, it would have taken a lot longer, uh, to go from point A to point B, um, uh, than the length of the movie. Um, so for the most part, I, I was blown away by it, but I, it, the latter half of that little bit is, uh, <laughs> I just get made me think at the end, like, I don't think that that they would have traveled that far in that amount of time with the pace they were walking. But I don't know. That's just me. I don't know. Whatever. But um, otherwise, uh, I I did like the two characters. It it did 
take me in a direction where I didn't think was going to happen. I thought, uh, you know, something else was going to happen to a different person and, and, um, and it didn't. And then I thought, well, I recognize that actor. I hope he's in this movie longer and he wasn't. And I go, oh, that's too bad. And then I recognize another actor. I'm like, oh, cool. He's in it. Let's hope he stays in it longer. And then nope, that didn't happen. So you had this like this long list of, of actors that you'll, you'll recognize. And there's only in it for like a little bit part, which, um, it's kind of too bad. And it is kind of cool at the same time. But, um, but anyhow, just the, I mean, I, I keep going back to the, the long takes, uh, for between each cut and it really makes it intense. I mean, I felt exhausted when I left the theater, but not because it was, it was too action packed or too intense. I mean, the intensity was brought with the, what the, the style of filming. Um, so anyhow, I mean, I, I thought, the, the, with the style of filming out by and large was, was very well done. I had something brand new that I hadn't seen before. So yeah, I, I, that, that's, that's, that's my initial uh, take on it. What about you? So I have to come clean and say, when I originally saw the trailer, I really was dismissive of what was going on. It, nothing really grabbed me. And I just thought it was, like I said, it, I was, I fell into that category of, being one of those people who just thought, oh, it's it's another war movie that is coming out and I'm kind of getting oversaturated with World War One, World War II movies. And I'm really glad that we ended up going to go see this film because this, this is probably the best World War film since Saving Private Ryan, in my opinion. I think that it's very different than what Steven Spielberg did with Saving Private Ryan. But Sam Mendes, I think, did a, a fantastic job in the approach of this film. I think that what you're talking about, how there were probably only maybe two or three cuts overall that they did a good job of editing in so that it really uh, was a subtle thing because far and wide, this thing was just one entire take. And um, I actually did some research looking at some of the behind the scenes of how they did it. And yeah, it was crazy. Like the, there are certain scenes like this is not a spoiler, but when you see in, in the movie trailer, you see him running down the field as the, um, his brothers and arms are, are running in a different direction. That was actually done initially when he first goes up out of the trench, it was two men holding the, the camera and they were staying in front of him. And then there's a brief moment where he hasn't started running yet and while that's happening, the guys actually seamlessly hook up using the bars that they were using to hold the camera. The bars get placed onto this rig on the back of a pickup truck. And then the pickup truck starts to move forward as he starts to run. So that gives a bit of a glimpse as to, yeah, like they actually had this whole thing set up where when they went from scene to scene, they had to methodically plan out, okay, at this point, this is how the framing's going to be at this point. The, the actor is going to be here, here, and here. Therefore, we need to have this type of gimbal or rig set up. I mean, I am very much looking forward to seeing more of the behind the scenes, more more of a, a just an in-depth look as to how they got the whole thing set up from start to finish. I was also thinking about how there are, but when I was thinking film history back in college, there were black and white films that, also flirted with the idea of not cutting a whole lot. And I can't remember if it was a touch of evil or if it was something else. There was a certain film that at the beginning, during the intro credits, there was um, the scene that took place. I want to say it, it was supposed to be Mexico. And there was this big celebration that was going on, a big party. And the, the camera was just making its way through as the, the, the credits were going. And it was this one big choreographed thing where no one could mess up. Otherwise, they'd have to do the shot all over again. And I think it lasted, I want to say, around five minutes, maybe longer. I'm not exactly sure. But for its time, no one had ever done that in cinema. And so it, it, it really stood out. And so for, for Mr. Mendez to actually go into it and be like, okay, I want to try doing this for, for most of the movie, I think was, was quite a feat. I also think too, I think that, that the film was very realistic. I think one of the things about war movies, and I don't know what it is, but ones that are done right, they cease being movies and they you, you're kind of thrust into the situation with them where you feel like you're on the battlefield. You feel like you're slogging through whatever it is that they're slogging through. And 
I really got the feeling of that in this film. And, and to your point, Steve, I think that not cutting introduces its own breed of intensity because I too felt that where at any point at any time, something could happen that was out of our control. And really it, it became more of a situational awareness thing where you're, you're in this visceral world, but if you turn your head the wrong direction, then something horrible could happen or what have, or maybe you see some, some sort of aftermath and we can get into more of that in detail a little bit, a bit later, but I would say definitely if you haven't seen this movie, uh, I would highly recommend going and checking it out because it is um, a very talented, well-directed film and it takes certain things that could easily be labeled a gimmick and instead turns it into to something that is truly original and memorable. Hey, with that said, Steve, step with me into the spoiler elevator. You know, I wonder, Steve, <clears throat> When were elevators invented? Do you happen to know what year? Uh, 1952. You know, I think you're making that up. (laughs) (laughs) Why don't you Google and find out, Russ? I think I'm probably right. Well, Steve, you were off by roughly uh, about 100 years because (laughs) uh, the first elevator shaft was put in a building before 1854. So... It was uh, to, to be to be specific. Um, there was a steam-powered elevator that was oh. created in 1853 at the ah. Union Foundation Building in New York. Uh. <laughs> Elevators have been around for a long time. And we've reached our spoiler floor. So if you haven't watched the film, we encourage you to pause us and go watch it. So that way you know what the heck we're talking about. Otherwise, if that doesn't bother you at all, well, then you are more than welcome to keep on listening to what we have to say. So, Steve, please give us a rundown of the plot. Okay, so you got these two guys. And you don't know really what they're doing because they're napping in the beginning. But they get in in charge of an important mission where they're supposed to uh, travel light on their feet to deliver a message to the other side of the uh, British Army who is about to go on foot invading. Oh, not really invading, but uh, make a huge (laughs) uh, stampede onto the German Army. And the Germans were planning this. And so there was just going to be a massacre. And so, um, they didn't, um, well, the Brits didn't know that. And so they said, okay, we have this reconnaissance, uh, that we want to give to you. So we can't send a ton of people. So we're going to send you two guys because one of which is because, well, your brother's going to die. And so here's the message. Here's a couple rations. Here's a couple bullets and, uh, off on your way. Uh, you get a green pass and a uh, hundred bucks, and some blue chips, and there you go. And so they go, and uh, they try and uh, sneak along, and they try and uh, be as quiet as a church mouse as they can, and try and get there, and uh, they encounter some trouble along the way. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for that. (laughs) That's basically it in a nutshell. Uh just to fill in some little areas. So yeah, the, one of the, the two soldiers has a brother who is a part of this huge regiment. That's going to be uh, moving forward against the, the Germans and they have to warn them because the Germans basically are, are going to be springing a trap. That's going to probably kill 1500 British soldiers. And so they have to make their way over there. And he's, uh, he's got his buddy who he has volunteered unknowingly to go, partake in this uh, deadly journey to try and uh, deliver this message and uh, also save his brother, that sort of thing. You know, I understand though, Russ, because if they were flying planes over to get this reconnaissance, why couldn't they just get back in a plane and say, hey, we're just going to drop off or like literally throw these um, plans out of a plane, like keep them in a tin can or something and uh, make a low pass over where the regiment was going to be, toss them out the window, and then, um, you know, behind their lines, of course, and so that their generals and lieutenants and sergeants could grab this and go, oh, my goodness. Okay, now we have uh, these orders right here from the get-go. Instead of uh, trusting two guys to cross over no man's land, uh, 
with with guessing along the way that two guys aren't going to get shot. Um, and those orders might not even get there at all. I don't know. I just thought mm, times of the essence. It's really important to save 1600 lives. I wouldn't put that in the hands of two people. I'd just like fly it over there. I mean, there had airplanes in the air anyway, you know? Well, I think, I think you're giving too much credit as to the technology of flight back in the day, because if, if you think about 1917, <laughs> the the planes that they were using were biplanes and the, oh, no. the, the the whole notion of flight was still very early on in its infancy. I, I think that, <laughs> that there will fly someday. <laughs> there, there are probably certain planes that just would crash land because they were so poorly thought of as, um, or not thought of, but like they just, they didn't have all of the aerodynamics down yet. And so, I mean, even watching in this, you know, there, there's a scene in the film where, the, the two soldiers see a dogfight going on and they're flying so slow and they, and the, the silhouette of those planes are so easy to, to spot in the sky. And so I think in terms of, of what they did, it was very common to have scouts or messengers that would just travel by foot because they have a smaller footprint and perhaps they'd be able to, to kind of go uh, through these different situations that would um, increase the, the chances of them being able to, to make their destination. But and, and the other thing too, I think is important to realize is, is that we have no context as to the, the, the real, cause this, this was actually a true story. And so I, I don't think we have context as to how close or far away their destination was. And so I, I tend not to, to put too much thought into that. I instead just kind of being more taken along for the ride and seeing what, what's going to happen. But I, for one, you know, you mentioned something earlier that I wanted to make a comment on, and that is in terms of the the recognizable actors, I, for one, actually really liked how they limited the recognizable actors in this film. And I and I, this has been always something that, that's kind of a, a pet peeve of mine is when it comes to something like a, a war movie. And I don't know why this is. I'll have to give it some thought. But when it comes to being in those types of realistic true story situations, I don't want to see some kind of recognizable celebrity being in certain roles. I prefer there to be um, faces that I've never seen before. And I think this film does that really, really well. And, and really, I think there are only two or maybe three times where I see someone who I recognize, but they intentionally, like I said, they, they intentionally limit their on-screen time and so then I end up buying it because I think the more that you do that, then the more sensational the film becomes. And I think that is kind of a, you know, Achilles heel, if you will, when it comes to people who are super successful in cinema, like, you know, like, like Benedict Cumberbatch, for example, like, I'm really glad that he had basically about five minutes of screen time, if that, and then that was it because otherwise it turns into a Benedict Cumberbatch movie. And so I, I, I for one was, was really pleased about it. What did you think, Steve, about the little plot twist that they had in the film where the, the brother who's the messenger ends up getting killed and his buddy ends up having to be the one that, that continues on? Yeah, that was that was nuts. I, I for sure thought that it was going to be <clears throat> his friend because when they first start going to make their journey, he gets cut like real deep in the palm of his hand with that uh, razor sharp barbed wire. I mean, it's not like, I mean, I think it was, I think it was more than just barbed wire. It was like razor wire because that ain't no <laughs> like barbed wire. You'd keep livestock in, the, in a farm pin. That was like razor wire. Um, and so it, it, it cuts into his hand. It's a bad cut. And he has to really dig that, that razor out. And then right after that, he's schlucking along in the mud and then puts his open wound into uh, the rotted corpse of uh, a German or another British guy. And so then he's got that. to. And so I thought, man, he's going to get some sort of disease. He's got to like lose his hand or he's going to become dead weight and sacrifice himself. Something's going to happen. But right away, I thought, man, that that that's terrible. And that they, they it didn't go that way. So... I didn't think that so early on that they were going to kill the guy's brother. I thought, man, um, wow. 
I thought they were going to, uh, and especially that way too, because I thought it might, you know, when the war is happening, everybody has family they want to go home to. They all have military orders that they're supposed to fire and shoot on the other side. But by and large, they're just guys like you and I. And so I figured if, if you know, when that plane crashes and these two uh, Brits were, it'll save the guy's life, even though he's the enemy, that he would recognize that heroism uh, instead of letting them burn to death inside the plane, that he wouldn't try and kill him. So that was a real big twist on me too, where, um, I mean, I guess war is war, but, um, don't take any chances because I mean, they were, he was trying to get some water to, you know, um, let this guy drink and calm down. And then one, the one time they turned their back, the guy pulls a knife and stabs him in his gut and that's it. Um, Godly. So, yeah, I, I was re- reminded a lot of Saving Private Ryan in that regard where they ended up, if you recall in Saving Private Ryan, there's there's a scene where they had to take out some Nazis and one of their guys ends up getting mortally wounded. And so the the, the Nazi that's still alive, they, if you recall, they have this big argument whether or not they should kill him or let him go. Right. And, and like, right. you know, are they are they sacrificing their humanity if they decide to kill him because he has become effectively a prisoner of war or what should they do? And then they let him go. And then he ends up later on returning back at the ranks of, of the Nazis, you know, the worst fear of soldiers being in a fight. And so I think it's, it's the same thing here where, again, I think it speaks volumes to the two lads who they're just, they're good people. You know, they're, they're, they're trying to fight for their country. They see that, that this German has been badly burned and wounded from his, uh, his plane crash. And so they, to them, they're thinking, okay, we now have gone from being soldiers of war to now we're going to be humanitarians and, and try and, and get this guy to uh, feel better, so to speak. But that's one of the gruesome aspects of war is unfortunately not everybody has that same frame of mind and you're going to end up uh, paying the price for it in one way or another. And I think that that was um, one of the many great moments of storytelling in this film. Even when, when it came to the milk where they they found a, a cow that was still alive and you can see how like that there was someone who had actually milked the cow not too long ago and the milk was still good and having so many different types of reactions to it whether it was the soldier who was drinking it and you could tell it was just kind of a slice of being back in, at normal life you know just having some some nice milk to drink and then i even forgot about how he had filled up his cantina with um, with the milk that was there because so much had gone on that by the time he was talking to that French woman who had the baby and having that exchange where he was tr- desperately trying to once again be more of a humanitarian and give them food and that sort of thing and then, then all of a sudden realizing, oh, it's a baby. The baby needs milk. And I, I, I just think that was a wonderful continuation of something that could have very easily been dropped and forgotten about where it was just taken at face value. Like, Oh, he needed to refill his canteen. So he filled it with milk and that was the end of that. So I found myself appreciating how there were, there were connections throughout the storytelling. Well, there you go. Well, there you go. But I thought he was going to be uh, a little more savage. Cause you know, he has that, that moment with, uh, those two Germans uh, in that that battered little village that was evacuated and demolished, um, where one of the one of the Germans was had obviously been drinking a little bit, and the other one uh, not so much. Right. But he go he just look at him like don't don't yell don't yell like I'm not going to hurt you, um, and trying to play the same thing again like the same card like look I'm not here to hurt anybody I'm just here to get you know get a message. Of course, you know the German didn't know that. But the guy's nonverbal action pretty much said that. He didn't pull a knife. He wouldn't pull a gun. He just pushed up against the wall saying, hey, I got the surprise on you. I can definitely kill you if I wanted to. I'm not going to do that. Play ball with me here. I'm just passing through. Uh, I think all that was definitely um, indicated. Um, but it's still, well, I mean, the guy took the, I mean, I, I don't know what I would do in that situation either. I mean, if I'm looking at the enemy, and he's telling me to be quiet, and I don't know what he's going to do, and I don't know how many other people are behind him. I don't know if he's the only guy there or he's not. Maybe I'd yell as well. I mean, 
you know, who well, knows? I, I think, you know? I think the movie introduces scenarios. And I think when it comes to the, like a, a war setting, you have different types of scenarios that are going on all the time. And it's very organic in terms of what happens at, at, in one moment is completely different in the, in the next moment. You know, you could, you could be enjoying like, you know, some milk that you happen to come across and then just a little while later, your friend is being stabbed by a German that you're trying to help. And then he ends up dying of just a few minutes later from the, the wound. And I think that was one of the really cool aspects of the way they were doing the plot and the storytelling in this particular film, where from, it was just a moment to moment thing of survival. And I think that coupled with the fact that they weren't making those cuts, it's amazing to me from a creative standpoint, how not cutting continues to, to add its own flavor of intensity. Not to say, like, if you were to watch, like, say, Saving Private Ryan, that movie was intense, too. It had its own type of intensity, and there were many, many cuts that they made throughout the film. I I, I don't know. I, I tend to geek out when it comes to that, that sort of open-mindedness when people are thinking, okay, we know that there are certain established ways to convey or communicate how something should feel or how this, how it should be intense. But are there other ways of, of going about it? And uh, so I, for one, definitely appreciated that. One of the things that I thought is, is, is definitely worth talking about is despite the fact that there were not cuts, it made for a, a creative challenge for the cinematographer to be able to constantly set up shots during a continuous take. And there were so many times where as the camera's moving or whatever, and it kind of takes a moment to, to frame up a shot before then moving to something else, that alone is worthy of merit because it is so difficult in real time to be able to get that right, especially if you're not trying to do cuts in the editing room or anything else like that. And my hat is definitely tipped to the, the folks who were working with that because there were so many shots where if you were to pause it and just look at how the shot was framed and how the lighting was affecting things that were going on, I mean, it was a work of art. It, it could have easily been like, like a, a snapshot of something and the composition was always strong despite being in fluid movement. Did you feel the same way? Yeah, I would say so. I would say so. Yeah. I'm one of the, one of my favorite moments, especially when it came to lighting was when they were in that or when, actually when just that one soldier was trying to find his way through that battered village or whatever it was, I think like the, the church or some sort of huge town hall building or something was on fire and it was at nighttime. And I thought it was so neat how there were moments where as he's trying to make his way through it, you had the fire that, that would provide some sort of, of light but then also, too, the Germans had those flares that they would shoot up every now and then. And because the flare, when it gets sh um, shot up into the sky, it creates that arc. It was so cool to actually watch how that would uh, manipulate the light and shadows. So as the soldier's trying not to be seen, as he's making his way through the destroyed architecture and stuff, it almost became kind of like this living painting, if you will, where where it was there, there was this, this almost like, destroyed beauty that was happening where despite him having to try and not be seen and, and the intensity of everything there, I found myself anyway, personally just watching going, man, like that is really beautiful in its own way. And I think that's kind of the magic of, of filmmaking is when you can have those moments that draw you in, it, it almost appeals to different parts of your human nature. And I think it was cool how it was to me, it was not overly done. I think they did it just enough to almost kind of cause you to take a moment and pause. And just like if they were to come out from some horrible environment and then all of a sudden they see like the sprawling green field and you're almost forgetting that you're in the middle of some horrible war and you're reminded of like, yeah, like this is still earth. This is still like if there, if it was any other day, we could like bust out like a, a, a picnic blanket and, you know, have some frisbee. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. What did you think of, of the, the scenes like, like that I'm describing with like the flares and how like the, you saw like the shadows kind of dancing on the architecture and stuff. 
No, I, I'm, I'm definitely right there with you. I mean, I, I, I believe that would have happened. And I, I believe that he probably felt the same way if he was, you know, trying to escape uh, or trying not to be seen. I think he, um, I think he would have also said there is kind of a, a terror, a terrifyingly beautiful haunting, um, uh, beauty about it <laughs> in a sense with, I mean, it's kind of those polar opposites where, uh, the lighting and the shadows and his face, like if he could stop and go, Hey, someone take a picture of me. So I will remember this 50 years <laughs> from now. Uh, yeah. Anybody got a quick snap? Um, <laughs> and so I don't know. Yeah. I, I kind of thought that was the, the same way there was, you know, when you're looking over somebody's shoulder, there's always that perspective of, um, are you seeing what they are seeing? And, that I think that's also why they filmed it that way. So you can almost see it through their eyes without actually being their eyes. Uh, so, I mean, he was looking straight on into, um, you know, that, that burning church or looking straight onto that plane coming at him straight on into traveling into darkness into those trenches or getting, um, uh, like the, 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 the one cave that they were in the man-made um, dugout that, that was set up for a trip wire to, to fall in, for a trap so the Germans couldn't be followed, you know, all that stuff. I mean, I think it was made that way so that we could actually see and feel, um, everything, all the poetry, good, bad, beautiful, uh, ugly, just how they see it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. I think that there, there is a certain level of immersion that I think that they were conscious of, as they were making the film. And I think that we benefit as viewers with that because there were so many instances where like, like what you, you mentioned earlier in the program about how one of the soldiers ends up cutting his hand really badly on the, I don't know if it's chicken. Like, no, I guess it's just barbed wire. I was gonna say chicken wire. Um, the, uh, it, it, it was crazy. Like where you really felt that like the, the, the film, didn't just gloss over certain things. I think that they took their time and in doing so, I think that's what really helped do what it is that, that you just described, which is being in those, those situations where you, you really felt the pain of the barbware going into his hand and him trying to get it out. And then just moments later, as they're trying to make their way through like a shelled field, he's, uh, you know, he's trying to negotiate through it and his friend comes down and he gets freaked out by seeing some sort of like charred soldier, which, you know, he's, he pushes into his buddy and, and it causes his buddy to like, like bury his hand into like some exploded chest of an, of a German soldier that was just, I mean, I felt so ill because, and I think everybody instantly knew exactly what had just trans you know, Oh, like, just like what you said, uh Oh, like he's going to probably get some sort of horrible disease from that or whatever it is. And it was, it, it wasn't beaten over our heads. You know, it, it was so quick and you saw his, his facial response because he clearly on screen had the same reaction of, Oh no, like that's, <laughs> that's like the worst place to put my injured hand. And I think the film had many other instances like that going on even toward the end when he was hearing all of a sudden some, someone singing in English and it was very faint, but he, you know, it was almost like a surreal experience where he wasn't sure where he was or what was going on. And was he imagining someone singing? And then all of a sudden he just happens to come across a battalion of his own men who are just listening to one of their own, try and offer some comfort through his ability to sing and how he just sits down and, how he's so exhausted and, and everything else. But at the same time, he finds solace in hearing that song go on. I think that there are, are relatable moments throughout the film that register once again on that, that just that human being level. And I think that it's been a while since I've, I've seen something that comes across as, as a very realistic, um, accessible type of, of visceral experience. What other moments like that in the film stood out to you, Steve? Well, I think we kind of touched on them all, <laughs> actually. Um, I don't know. I, I, I'm right there. I'm tracking right there with you. But I, I think that we kind of we touched on pretty much everything. Um, I think that the this type of you know you don't have to make 
a war movie and just show the gruesomeness of war throughout the ages. Like every 10 years, you know, we have to show another war movie, another war movie, another war movie. And this is the gruesomeness of war. Here you go again, you know, 10 years later, here's the gruesomeness of war. And I think that uh, you can have a war tale and show the the different side of, you know, human struggle or emotion or, um, you know, togetherness, if you will, um, the effort to save each other's lives and the, the desperation. And I think that there's a story to be told there too, where um, that could easily happen in, um, in war days today. But you don't have to show, you know, people getting blown up and their arms falling off. And, you know, that was, <laughs> there's a time and place, I think, for something like that. But I think there's also a time and a place for, uh, you know, uh, war movies like this one. Yeah. Well, how about we go into uh, movie trivia courtesy of IMDb, unless you have anything else you wanted to say. And then we can go into our final Let's conclusions. Go. Let's go. Bro. So uh, there, there are quite a few of here that I'm looking forward to sharing with you as well as all of our listeners. So uh, to kick things off, uh, over 5,200 feet of trenches were dug for the film, which uh, translates to just under one mile. It took six months for the actors to rehearse the movie before shooting started. How about them apples, eh? <laughs> the, uh, the flares flying over the ruined town were flown along wires in order to control the direction of the shadows they cast. They That's were smart. also, and that, uh, pretty cool. They were also chemically formulated to burn with a warmer color that was closer to tungsten light which makes total sense because it has that kind of golden hue. Sam Mendes, who's the director and Lee Smith stated that despite the apparently continuous shot broken only by one interval of unconsciousness, there were actually dozens of quote unquote invisible edits concealed by transitions through black moves behind objects and so on. According to Mendes, the shortest unbroken shot was 39 seconds long while the longest single continuous shot was eight and a half minutes long. The lighting rig used for the burning church was five stories high and consisted of 2,000 1K tungsten lamps, a total of two megawatts, which is not to be confused with a gigawatt. It was one of, if not the largest, lighting rigs ever built for our film. How about that? Man. Sections of the film were shot in and around low force on the river trees, uh, Teasdale in June, 2019, the production staff had to erect signs warning walkers in the area not to be alarmed by the bodies strewn around the site. <laughs> Good heavens. What is that? Uh, this was a technically challenging film for Sam to direct, yet one of the biggest headaches for the film crew came from a cigarette lighter that would not work on cue in the scene and resulted in several takes until it did. This minor problem resulted in the best part of a day's filming being wasted. <laughs> I love this kind of stuff. Mendez says his grandfather, Alfred, who entered, you know, by the way, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Is it pronounced Mendez or is it, is it pronounced differently? I'm, I'm assuming that's how you pronounce his name. So I apologize. I, if, it. I would hate it if like our listeners are screaming at the, the phone or the radio, like that's not how you say his name. So anyway, I, I, I'm hoping I'm saying that correctly. Anyway, his grandfather, Alfred, who entered World War I in 1916 as a 17-year-old, did indeed carry messages through no man's land as per the mission in this film. His advantage was that he was only five foot four. Oh, like you, Steve. And was often hidden by the battleground's winter mist that usually hung as high as six feet. And I after soldiering not. for two years in the muddy trenches... Grandfather Alfred had a lifelong habit of constantly washing his hands. Yet he never talked about his wartime experience until he was in his late, or excuse me, until he was in his 70s. Steve, what were you going to say? I'm not five foot four. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, by the way, this is Sam Mendez's first official writing credit. Interessante. 
The film is dedicated to Sam Mendes's father, or excuse me, grandfather, who was Lance Corporal in the King's Royal Rifle Corps during the Great War. The King's Royal Rifle Corps was uh, amalgamated um, into the Royal Green Jackets of 1966 and was then further amalgamated with other red coat regiments to form the rifles in 2007. Oh, I had no idea. There are like so many juicy things in here. I have to be careful which ones I pick because we could be here for quite a while. Tom Holland was in talks for the role of Lance Corporal Blake, but turned down the role due to schedule conflicts. Steve, what do you think about the the possibility of Tom Holland taking over the role of Lance Corporal Blake versus who was actually in there? I could probably take it or leave it. I think Tom Holland would be a great pick, um, but I think... I kind of like your idea with uh, you have some actors who are maybe aren't as established as uh, like Tom Holland, for example, and you have them be the star of the show. And then um, some of the other well-known actors, you know, kind of fill in in different spots. So I think they, I think I'm, yeah, I think I'd be okay with that. I, 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 yeah, I'd be curious to see like how he would do, I think he, he would do a really good job, but I also, I also don't want to take away from the performance of the actor who was playing Blake in this film. I think he did a really nice job too. Director of photography Roger Deakins chose to shoot most of the film on an Ari Alexa LF digital format camera using several lens types. The first time he had used this particular camera in his long career. Well, I would say he did a bang up job. Wouldn't you say, Steve? Nice indeed. This is Sam Mendes' second war film. His first was Jarhead, which I never saw. Did you see Jarhead? I did see Jarhead. I saw that one a while ago. Um, Didn't really make it that big of an impression on me. Okay. This is Universal Pictures' second film to be specially formatted for IMAX in the expanded aspect ratio of 1.90 colon 1. Uh, let's see here. Other than images in the family photos, the young girl who offered shelter in the village and the young baby she's caring for are the only two females seen in the entire movie. Yeah, you know, I found myself in the darkened theater um, kind of almost wondering if I'd missed something in terms of that. Did you, did, you, well, did that kind of did that call out to you at all or not? Yeah. I mean, I, I noticed it, but I figured that at, around that time there wasn't very many women in combat. They, uh, they were more so like in the, um, the hospital uh, tents taking care of soldiers. So we only saw that once uh, towards the end of the movie, but not in the beginning. So I mean, in that regard, there wouldn't be much um, women on screen <laughs> since yeah. they weren't in those areas. So, George McKay's character, Lance Corporal uh, Schofield, twice bumping into running soldiers and getting up was not in the script and happened accidentally. A remarkably detailed description and background of this Run for Life finale is detailed by actor-writer Bruce Fretz in his January 2020 New York Times article. So that scene where he's running with his his brothers in arms, running the uh, different direction, and him getting knocked over twice, that actually happened by accident, which I think is awesome. Yeah, I, I, I would figure. I mean, if it was all perfect and he didn't get hit once with uh, a charging army, then I would think that there would be two choreographed. So <laughs> yeah, I'd like how, yeah. The final scene of Schofield finding uh, Lieutenant Blake and presenting him with his brother's rings was the very first take, according to Sam Mendez and Lee Smith. A little bit of irony there for you, eh? An extra on the film said, I can't help but laugh at the final shot at the tree. About 100 extras used that tree to urinate on as the toilets were so far away. We had no idea that the ending would take place with the main actor sitting under it. <laughs> awesome. Jeez. In the scene, butt wet when I sit down? <laughs> what is that? That pungent smell. In the scene where a soldier bleeds to death, his face gets paler and paler until it's paper white. This is a medical reality that many films overlook when someone bleeds out. You know, I think Saving Private Ryan uh, incorporated that as well. Yeah. When Schofield plunges into a river filled with dead bodies, Sam Mendes describes this was meant to remind the audience of the mythical river Stikes bordering hell especially as this scene evolves and 
lone hero Schofield is soon led to safety as he follows the um, ethereal solo voice of a singing comrade. Right. That's what I was talking about just a little while ago. The narrative seems to shift from a tone of naturalism to one of epic myth. Yep. Totally agree. The two main characters' first names are not revealed until the end of the film. I miss that. I got so used to hearing their last names the whole time. Yeah, I thought they. I, I would figure. I thought they said it in the beginning of the movie, but anyway. the movie's beginning shot and ending shot both focus on a soldier sitting under a tree. Very poetic. Oh. The opening and closing scenes of 1917 both show Lance Corporal Schofield sitting against a tree. This was done to create two bookends of the film, of course, but also to give a feeling of a journey being completed. Let's see. Got a couple more here for you. Despite being such a graphic war film, only four soldiers are shown directly uh, being killed in combat. The German pilot, Lance Corporal Blake, the German sentry by the bridge, and the German soldier strangled. It is very likely he just passed out since strangling a person to death takes a long time. Very interesting. And finally, this film is at least the third time that Dean Charles Chapman's character dies. The others were Toman Baratheon and Martin Lannister in Game of Thrones of 2011. Hmm. And that is your movie trivia courtesy of IMDb. So Steve, please give us your final thoughts on the film as well as your rating. I would say uh, they they took a risk on this film and um, I think it should definitely be rewarded. I, it was definitely one of the more entertaining war movies I've seen, I would say. I uh, definitely took notes from Saving Private Ryan as I felt that leaving the theater, but I'm glad it wasn't trying to be Saving Private Ryan. Um, I did like uh, – the best part of the movie I, get, I think was the, the cinematography style and the over-the-shoulder look um, as it, like I said in the beginning, created its own intensity. And I, I just felt I was with him the entire time and I felt exhausted at the end of the movie because of it. Although I didn't feel emotionally drained. Um, and I think there's a difference there. I, I felt like I had trekked along with them as I reclined my seat and ate my popcorn and um, drank a little bit of Sprite. Um, <laughs> but but at the at the end, I, I it, it still had me thinking. And I was even kind of perturbed that, you know, I, maybe I'm bringing my wife to the wrong movie. But then she came around and said uh, that she liked it as well. And so I thought, well, all right, men and women, that's great. We both can appreciate the film. I thought it was artistic and uh, I thought it was beautiful. And, and, you know, one thing, one part that didn't really come out to me uh, or, or stick out was the music so much. I, I don't really remember how the music was at all in the movie, but... Um, anyway, that's neither here nor there. I don't think they were going for musical score nomination. So um, anyhow, I mean, I would definitely watch it again, maybe on like a 4K, um, 4K TV. I think that, uh, you know, the theater that I saw it in, I saw a little bit of like a, a ghosting um, screen where a lot of the, like, the panning shots from left to right or were passing characters. Um, so I, I would definitely watch it again, but maybe a little more high quality than than what was in the theater. But um, anyhow, I would say if I was to give it a rating, I would definitely rate it a four star. Four stars, he says. Well, thank you for that, Steve. I would say I think that this is a film that everybody should definitely go and see. I think that when it comes to war movies, the, the quality bar is set so high that I, I find myself personally becoming more and more jaded. I mean, maybe jaded is like the wrong word. I think harder to impress is probably much more accurate. And I think when it, when it comes to this film, I was impressed. I definitely really was not ex anticipating or expecting the type of narrative that was told. And also I absolutely adored their approach to how they wanted to have like a single take uh, presentation to the entire film, which anytime that, that you have filmmakers who want to take a risk, and have that risk pay off. I think that that is wonderful just because it's very easy and tempting, especially when you have millions or hundreds of millions of dollars at stake where people want to make sure that, that your product does well and they're not entirely sure if what you're suggesting is going to work. Because oftentimes, 
those types of ideas fail. And I think it's so cool that this was a resounding success. I think that it was fantastic to be able to listen and, and experience a story that is very human in nature. I think that it does get in. There are so many opportunities throughout the film that give us the ability to get in touch with different aspects of humanity. And I think war does that overall anyway, when you, especially when you have a world war and there are so many complexities to life and death. And I think that this is, this offers just a glimpse of something that was so much bigger in scale and contains many types of scenarios and stories and that sort of thing that, that go on. And so I think that there will always be more stories to tell when it comes to this. I think my rating, I'm going to give it 4.5 stars. I think that there was a lot to drink in with this film. I think honestly, the film due to the fact that it took kind of more of a kind of slice of what was happening overall. I don't think it is quite as good as Saving Private Ryan. I think Saving Private Ryan has more of a grand feel to it. And I think it, for me personally, it just resonates more. But having said that, I think that this is just beneath where I put a film like Saving Private Ryan. And that wraps up this episode of Joygasm. Make sure you tune in next week. Thanks for hanging out with us. If you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to check out patreon.com slash joygasm, which is spelled J-O-Y-G-A-S-M and consider becoming a monthly contributor. You'll get exclusive perks and early access to the show. Not to mention it really helps us continue doing what we love to do. Also, you can follow us on social media and YouTube. Just do a search for Joygasm TV. Last but not least, if you get lucky, you can search Joygasm TV on Twitch to perhaps seeing us stream some gaming adventures. Until then, we will see you all next week. Bye.